Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Ephesians 6. Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm breaking a personal policy, and that is to teach from a passage of Scripture that starts with an instruction when there's all this theology that led up to that. You may have heard me say at one point or another, don't ever start a Bible study in Romans 12. And the reason for that is that there's some possibility that you might simply instill behavior modification in those who have no awareness of Romans 1 through 8, uh, or even Romans 1 through 11, but especially 1 through 8. And so uh, this morning, uh, we will go back a bit in an effort to have the right understanding of why Paul is saying what he is saying in verse 4 of Ephesians 6. But I do want to emphasize the reality that, as we've often said, the Bible is exactly enough. The Bible is exactly enough for sound, effective, productive, profitable parenting. We're told in 2 Peter 1 that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. And so that, in a sense, is the groundwork upon which we must think about all things So the Bible is not silent. It's not even quiet on the matter of parenting. And so I want to start by telling you, I as a parent need your help. I don't assume that because I have some understanding of what the Bible says that I am on this uh, road by myself or that my wife and I somehow are on this road by ourselves. I encourage you not to check out if you are a single person who has never had children in light of the reality that you may one day have kids, but far more important than that, far more important than that, the body is a group of people who are gifted diversely. Therefore, there can be wisdom gained from those who have not had children, especially for those who are spending time faithfully in the Scripture If you're past the point of parenting, please don't check out because you certainly have wisdom to offer to others who are in the parenting process, and I personally would benefit from that wisdom. If you are in that category of having never had children and likely will never have children, please don't check out because you are an important part of the body of Christ, and the body needs your wisdom. If nothing else, you may observe something going on in someone's child's life that that parent needs to know about. If you go to that parent without biblical wisdom, you might have an issue that you brought on yourself. On the other hand, if you go to that parent with biblical wisdom, which we hope to provide this morning, then you have much better likelihood of instilling wisdom in that parent. So as we look at this together, this is not a passage of Scripture that's specifically and only for one category of people, those who are involved in uh, parenting of young children right now. It is not exclusively or only for that category of people. It's for every Christian. We call this the plenary value of Scripture, meaning that it is all equally valuable. It is all the Word of God. And so... Uh, The result is that where Paul has said that his effort was to proclaim the whole counsel of God and establishing a pattern for every pastor that would come after him, we must do the same. 
We must have a right understanding of the different genres of literature throughout Scripture. But we also must understand why God is saying what he is saying at a particular time. And in this passage, it's not elusive. It's not difficult. It is enough. It's exactly what you need. It's exactly what I need. So I'm not apologizing from the beginning, but I am saying from the beginning that I do not think by any means that I have parenting totally figured out. And if I do, in fact, follow what the scripture says, I'm going to take counsel from you. Now, for the next, hopefully less than an hour, we'll be in a scenario where you are taking counsel from me, but ultimately we are taking counsel from God together, not just now in this venue, but in our lives together, in our family groups, in discipleship, in those other venues where we spend time together in an effort to encourage and instruct one another from the truth of God's word. I hope that helps. I hope that encourages every single one of you in this room, no matter your age, no matter your marital status, uh, no matter your parental status or lack thereof, the Lord has this word for you and for me this morning. So let's pray again quickly and ask him to give us wisdom and humility to receive this from him. Father, thank you for the perfection of your word. I thank you for the imperfect faithfulness of this people. The people of the Anchor Bible Church have grown to be a people who love scripture, a people who love God, and a people who love people. And so we ask this morning that you would help us to be like-minded, not simply for the sake of unity, but for the sake of your glory and the good of those whom you love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Few words, much theology. Why can Paul say, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Do not provoke them to anger. In fact, bring them up, rear them, raise them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Well, in a sense, it's because of Ephesians 1 through 3. I'm not going to ask you to turn there, but I think you have a pretty good idea that Ephesians 1 through 3 deals with God's sovereignty in election, and it deals with God's purpose in his church. God has laid out a plan, and what he has predetermined to come to pass will, and yet there are commands throughout Ephesians 1 through 3, but it's mostly theology. You know this, I think that many of the books of the Bible, the New Testament, are broken up by halves, mostly unequal halves in terms of uh, volume, in terms of content and then practice, or what we might call doctrine and then practice of that doctrine, or what we might call orthodoxy and then orthopraxy. So the doctrine and then the practice, and we certainly have that in Ephesians. Now don't think that Ephesians 1 through 3 is only doctrine without practice, and don't think that Ephesians 4 through 6 is only practice without doctrine not the case there's both in both but primarily for the most part you have the doctrine of the church in Ephesians 1 through 3 meaning the gospel as it's displayed in people that God has saved some and in saving some they depict his character in a group called a local body and then in 4 through 6 we're given commands repeated commands rapid-fire commands lots of commands rooted in that theology Here's the why, and here's the what. Why to do it, 
and what to do. And that's what we have. So by the time we get to chapter 6, Paul has dealt with a number of matters, but specifically now in uh, chapter 6, we have a command to fathers. Why fathers? Why not fathers and mothers? Here's why. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Paul says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Some translations, in fact, you might have this translation that uses the word submit. That is not a wrong word. Now, obviously we live in a culture, just about every group of Christians throughout history has lived in a culture that doesn't like this. Especially with the, the feministic movement, there is a grand, there has been a grand effort to take this and make it mean something that it doesn't mean. And a lot of that has to do with those in church venues have, who have abused this passage. I heard a story just a couple weeks ago of a man who has told his wife that she must call him Lord because Sarah called Abraham Lord as displayed in 1 Peter 3. It's in the Bible, therefore you must do it. And I, you know, some of you are laughing. I was kind of laughing too, and this was serious. So the man who has that perspective has very likely intentionally twisted Scripture at worst and at best. He has simply misunderstood it. And so your role, my role, is to understand what Scripture means and live in light of that truth ourselves and help others to live in light of that truth. Certainly, men, I think you know, you do not own your wife. You are not your wife's master. But as Scripture clearly explains, you symbolize Christ's headship of the church and in essence are your wife's head. It does not make you the boss. It does not make you in charge. And there are uh, those, I want to spend just a moment on this, I'll talk about it more later perhaps, but there are those who have somewhat of a subtle uh, mindset about this passage and they'll say things like, well, right, we talk about things, but ultimately all the decisions are mine. And it sounds very humble, and it almost sounds biblical, but it's not. Being the head does not mean that you somehow rule the home in such a way that her thoughts are only welcome at the point where you're in a good mood. But sadly, many men have twisted this passage to mean that headship is a matter of sacrificial love what it comes down to who's the, the model Christ and how did he depict his headship how does he depict his headship before the church he died for the church Acts 20 verse 28 tells us that God spilled his blood for the church that's headship if you want to understand headship that's what it is now as I said in nearly every culture that humankind has ever known there's been an effort to twist this passage, and I fault pastors who don't clear this up in the pulpit. You and I need to understand this so that we live in light of it. 
and that others would know how we might honor him and help them to honor him as well. So again, verse 24 from Ephesians 5, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. This implies that a husband is doing at least something to endeavor to emulate the person of Christ. Now, we're not doing a theology of what it means to be a godly wife today, but the point is that the husband who is called upon to discipline his children is first called upon to be a husband who would die for his wife. And he proves that by how he lives in the home. Verse 23, kind of going backwards here. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Why fathers? Well, it's obvious fathers have been given the ultimate responsibility of leading the body in such a way that he would die for the body. If he would do that, if he would prove that, then he would certainly be involved in submitting to the prohibition from inciting his children to anger. And therefore, he must be thoughtful about how to do that. Don't just read the passage, guys, and say, yeah, you know what, I need to do that. And they get back to the same patterns of your life without being willing to subject yourself to the scrutiny and counsel of other men and maybe even other women. I think one of the greatest mistakes that men make is asking their wives what they think about this. Well, tell me what you think about, you know, whether or not I'm exasperating the children. Now, in a context where a man is exasperating his children because he's controlling his wife, she's going to be scared to death, and all she's going to say is, oh, no, honey, you're great, because that's what he's trained her to do. But the humble, godly man will subject himself to other men. And he might even, if he's really humble, subject himself to his wife's friends and ask the very simple question, what do you think of how I manage my home? And will you please love me enough to be honest and tell the truth? So guys, if that's your disposition, you're well on your way to being a man who doesn't exasperate your children. And let me start by saying this before we get into the real nuts and bolts of this. If you're convinced that you don't exasperate your children, you probably do. The pride of man is such that he thinks he's wise. And the Proverbs tell us not to consider ourselves to be wise. It tells us to pursue wisdom, to look for wisdom, to trust that God has given us wisdom in abundance. The command then, it's a prohibition, do not provoke your children to anger. It's a black and white command, but it takes some effort to understand what this looks like. Do not exasperate them. Do not cause them to resent. And it's not necessarily only causing them to be exasperated with you because it's not qualified that way. Don't lead them to exasperation or anger toward yourself or anyone. That's the point. It's left generic so that it would apply to any circumstance. Now remember, your children are born into exasperation. So you have a disadvantage. They're born into anger. Not just your child. 
why is my son like this? By the way, my mom could relate to that if you're feeling that way. He's different. My mom had five kids. He's different, she said about me. It might be true. And it might be true about your child. It's not helpful to you. It's not helpful to anyone to think, somehow I got a special case that's so special, it's beyond the God-given help of his perfect word. See, that loophole, friends, will kill you. And it will lead to your child's exasperation, for sure. Because then what are you going to do? You're going to run elsewhere. You bypass the only perfect document that the world has ever known. And think that somehow, you know, Paul didn't know about you know, modern issues. Paul wasn't thinking about what we would be going through. He wasn't thinking about, you know, how growth hormones would cause children to change and morph. Paul was thinking exactly what God, who has predetermined all things, knew. Paul knew exactly what he needed to know, and you and I have exactly what we need to have. Now, when you get that nailed down in your heart, and this is why in our systematic theology, whether it's with our kids or with our adults, we put so much emphasis in the beginning on a bibliology. What do you believe about the Bible? Many of your discussions, and I've had lots of them with you myself, but many of your discussions with people that you love, people that you hope to have an influence on, are many times taking a left turn at the beginning. They get difficult from the beginning because you don't have the same view of the Scripture. You know, you and I endeavor, I don't think we do it perfectly, I certainly don't, we endeavor to believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture. You sit down with someone who's uh, embraced liberal N.T. Wright-like theology, you've you got a real battle on your hands. You know, someone who professes to be a Christian, someone who professes to have a high view of Scripture and a high view of God, and yet they can do all kinds of linguistic gymnastics to make the Bible not say what it says. But for you and me, especially this morning, but as we go forward as well, we need to start with an understanding of the sufficiency of the Scripture, specifically what God has said about His Word. Now, where do you draw the line if you don't draw it there, right? What do you believe if you don't believe especially what God has said about His Word? So if you believe in the perfection of God's Word, then you can at least sit back and say, okay, the problem is me. But if you don't believe in the sufficiency of the Scripture... And, and on top of that, if you think yourself to be the only necessary interpreter of Scripture, you ever heard somebody say, I don't need the church fathers. I just quote Scripture. I don't need the Reformation. I don't need the Puritans. I don't need a pastor. I don't need young people in the church who look at my life and wonder why I'm not more faithful than I am. I don't need any of that. I just need the Bible. That dismisses all the relationships in the Bible. It dismisses a large percentage of the commands in the Bible to subject ourselves to the one another's. You know that study we did in the one another's? Those are people. Those are relationships. So knowing that, if we are to subject ourselves to what the Bible says about the Bible, we got a good start. We can deal then with a high degree of honesty and say that where I'm falling short, it's not the Bible's fault. But to develop a sullen attitude from the beginning, oh, here we go. That's not a good start either. I encourage you to humble yourself as we 
subject ourselves to God's perfect word and trust him for wisdom and for the salvation of our children, for the joy of our children, for the righteousness of our children, that we would not exasperate them, right? But as I said, they're born into exasperation. Psalm 51, 5 is pretty clear. David says this about himself. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin my mother conceived me. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen begins with, Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. You believe that? Oh, not my kids. I'd bypass that. Oh, my kids are so smart. You know? Okay, I think that about my kids too. But I certainly don't think that they've bypassed the foolish gene. Why? Let me tell you, it is certainly not because of my experience with my children. It is because of what the Bible says. So again, we're back to a, a sound bibliology, examining your bibliology. What do you believe about the Bible? Why, though? Why are fathers to be insistent on not provoking their children to anger? Well, the proverb is clear that we are to avoid angry people. It's a command of the scripture. Avoid those who are angry. But the real issue is that God is holy and he rightfully judges sin and he mercifully grants grace to the repentant. We know this to be true. This is an inarguable, flawless reality about the character of God. He grants mercy to the repentant and he grants judgment to the non-repentant. That's why. That's why. Why does God tell believers to avoid those who are angry so they won't be influenced with them? Our memory passage for this morning, he who is wise walks with the wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Who you subject yourself to really, really matters. Allowing yourself to be greatly influenced by an angry person is going to bring great harm. It's a foolish thing to do. Why then would you allow your child to grow to be angry, to grow to be exasperated? If you know that the command of the scripture is for other people to avoid him, you're setting that child up for church discipline. Why, why not take God's commands now and be involved in the discipline and instruction of the Lord rather than exasperating him? You see, if you just leave your kids alone, you're exasperating them. That's exasperating Listen to this from Exodus 21, verse 15. He who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. This was the Old Testament, the Old Covenant code that we are not bound by as believers in the New Testament. But this is what believers in the Old Testament era were to do with their children. If a child struck his father or his mother, he was to be put to death. Why? Because the clear intent of the child was to kill his father or his mother. And so exercising capital punishment against that child would then prevent that child from ultimately killing his parents or someone else. If you're willing to kill your parents, you just might be willing to kill other people. So the principle is clear behind the command. But then in verse 17, he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Why? Why? Because this is certainly an expression of disinterest and disdain for what God has provided for the child. 
It is a statement that, God, I don't care, I don't like, I'm not interested in what you've provided, and therefore I curse my parents. It was an expression of hatred for God, a disinterest in adhering to God's holiness. Command is to train your children up in the way of the Lord. And yet, those who would not only strike, but even curse their parents, want their parents dead, want their parents to receive harm, that is an expression of a disdain for God himself and the blessing that he has provided with those parents. Again, we're in a different economy in the New Testament, so we are not commanded to exercise such punishment against our children, but God's attitude has not changed. God's attitude toward those who curse their parents has not changed. Only the consequences have changed. Now think from this perspective. Proverbs 23, 14 says, If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. Now what is Sheol? It's not certainly hell, but it is the afterlife. That's what the shield, the word Sheol means. It means that which person enters into after this lifetime. Uh, now, certainly, there's not a need for a child to be struck with the rod so that his soul would be saved from heaven. So the point is that there is the need for corporal discipline, despite what modern psychologists will tell you. They don't dictate what we believe about the Word of God. God dictates what we believe about the Word of God. So the purpose, ultimately, is to see your children come to Christ. They would recognize that their conduct is worthy of discipline that brings about pain. So there's a sense in which when you provide the rod, you are providing a little slice of hell, so to speak. But not eternally and not nearly with the same devastation or even impact. But the point is that there's a connection between sin and consequence. There's a connection between uh, that which displeases the Lord and that which the Lord applies to the person who displeases him. And we'll get into some of the excuses that some will make against this or some of the provisions that some have provided against it. But at this time, I want to talk a little bit about how to exasperate your child. A long list of things, and I shortened it to the degree that I could. How to exasperate your child. Number one, become angry. Becoming angry with your children while you're Professing to be a person who is committed to not provoking your children to anger is certainly going to provoke your children to anger because they see what you're doing and they're convinced that you are a hypocrite. You say, well, what parent has never been angry with his kids? Well, I can't raise my hand to that question. You seek forgiveness. You acknowledge it. You know, some have said children are a lot smarter than what we give them credit for. And that might be true, but I think the real issue is we are a lot more self-deceptive than we give ourselves credit for. Thinking that somehow my children don't know what's going on when I am engaging in the sin that I'm telling them not to engage in while I'm telling them. Stop being angry! That's not helpful. And it will certainly provoke your children to anger. Two, be hateful. And say hateful things. I don't have to explain that. That would certainly lead a child to anger. 
or be disgusted? How could you possibly be my child? I can't believe the way you're acting. Don't you have any manners? Are you really part of this family? You know, be disgusted with your child. That will certainly lead to exasperation. And be sarcastic. I was reading a comment that a, a well-known blogger made some time back, and he said he had asked his children, if they, they're, they're all grown, if they could change one thing about him and his parenting, what would it be? And they all said, each of his kids said, that you would not be sarcastic. And see, sarcasm is the subtle sin. Sarcasm in the right context is actually good, and Paul uses a lot of sarcasm throughout his writing. But sarcasm with the intention to gain control, to gain behavioral change, it's only harmful, and it certainly will lead to exasperation. Five, berate them. Make them feel small. Why are you acting like that? Sometimes I say to Silas, who's 14 months old, you're such a baby. But if he were, you know, six or eight, why are you acting like a baby? That's not helpful. And, and, and they might be acting that way, right? But that's not a helpful comment. You know they're acting like a baby. They're manipulating you by acting like a baby. But to make that comment is just not helpful when it's said that way, when it's said with sarcasm in an effort to berate. It could be helpful to say, you know, in the right moment, you know, it sure seemed like you were acting like you were one or two years old in the right context, with the right tone, with the right heart attitude. Number six, manipulate them. You know, say things like, well, I don't know. I never acted like that when I was your age. Well, we raised you in the church. I don't know. Not sure why you're acting like that. I prayed for you. Oh, how I pray. My prayer closet, you know, the carpet in there is just worn out. <laughs> I'm glad my friends don't have kids like you. Number seven, excuse their sin. You know the phrases. Oh, he's, he's just tired. Well, right. Tell me where in the scripture that the Lord says through anyone that to be tired makes it okay to sin. Sin is not sin when you're tired. Or he's just shy. Why is that okay? It's rude. He's just cranky. I noticed. He's got ADHD. I strongly encourage you to do a legitimate study on attention deficit hyperactive disorder and be discerning. Just read the facts. Look for a legitimate medical connection between the 18 behaviors that they use as the tests and something that's truly neurological or medical. Look for it. I promise you it's not there. You will search in vain. It does not exist. But there are those who write articles with the assumption that it does. This is not something I'm not familiar with. Now, am I saying that those behaviors don't exist? Of course not. 
And am I saying that there is not some impact on behavior that comes through diet? No, I'm not saying that. Uh, if you give me a candy bar, um, I'll be asleep in 20 minutes. So I understand the connection between especially chemically processed things and your conduct. Yes, those things can have some impact on your irritability, etc. Give me plenty of coffee in the morning and no food, I'm going to be a little jittery. But that's not what we're talking about. Now, is it wise to consider and modify your family's diet so as to be helpful regarding these things? Of course it is, and I strongly encourage it. Strongly encourage it. But don't let sin be excused or dismissed simply because of some other issue that's been going on. You will exasperate your child. And again, when someone, especially someone in what they would refer to as the professional world, will tell you, your child has this disorder, investigate, be a Christian, be discerning. You should be far more wise than the unbelieving doctor. Be discerning, read the materials, ask yourself the question, have I run this through a biblical grid? You say the Bible doesn't deal with things like broken arms. That's right but it does deal with the attitude that you and I should have in accepting that as God's sovereign work in our lives and how to handle it with grace and with love and compassion with a way that glorifies Jesus Christ. I'm not one of those who says that medicine is never helpful. But you know and I know that it's greatly abused. Why? Because the church has abdicated the responsibility to understand the human heart from God's perspective and has run to the world. You say, but I know people who run to Christian psychology. That's still the world because there has been an attempt to amalgamate truth with error. You say, no, no, no. I know those who have taken truth and they're simply looking at human behavior. Why do you need more than the Bible to understand human behavior? What more do you need to understand than the fact that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child? That's all you need to know. Number eight, ignore their sin. Act like it's not happening and let your friends deal with it. Just ignore it. I remember when I, you know, before I had kids, and believe me, I understand this much better than I did then, but I can remember thinking, I think those parents are deaf. I'm pretty sure something happened to that woman when she had that baby to where she no longer sees anything or understands anything about what's really going on. Now, there have probably been a few people that have said that about me since that time. I remember one time I was in Lowe's with two of my boys standing at the checkout line with, you know, the things I was about to purchase. And this girl looks up and says, whose kids are those? Kind of to me. Whose kids are those? And I looked around and I said, Never mind. <laughs> and I said, boys, stop wrestling and let's go. There was a full-on Kings of Wrestling match going on right there on the floor of Lowe's. People were gathering, you know, paying for tickets. And, and honestly, I didn't think it was a big deal. But <laughs> clearly this young single gal thought it was a pretty big deal. So there's going to be a discrepancy between, you know, what you think is okay and what others think is okay. But at some point, we've got to be willing to recognize the reality. We can easily become desensitized. You want to exasperate your kids? Just ignore their sin. Never deal with it. 
Number nine, become desensitized to their sin. Now that's different. To ignore it is to simply act like you don't know that it's going on. But to become desensitized is to actually not know that it's going on when it is. To just be unaware. Why? Because of the salving of the conscience, calling it okay. And then if you gather people around you who will all say, oh, it's okay, pretty soon, you won't notice it. You won't have to ignore it because you won't know that it's going on. When your children call evil good and good evil, they see things that you know are not right as they get older, you know, 12, 14, 18, they start seeing things and say, well, mom, what's the big deal? Everybody's doing it. You know, it's all over the internet. What has happened is you became desensitized to their sin when they were children, and now guess what's happening? The tables have turned and they're influencing you to think that things that are not okay are okay. And they're calling evil good, and now you're starting to think, well, I guess it's not such a big deal. I saw an article the other day where a pastor wanted to help people know what to do if their children decided to be gay. And the article was something, the title was something like that. What to do if your children say that they're gay. And he had a list of things, but the one that uh, impacted me the most was that he would acknowledge beforehand that his kids one day might become gay. And I thought, okay, is he, I mean, is he just being humble, saying, okay, my kids might turn out this way, I hope not, uh, but I, I want to acknowledge that that could happen, I want to address it biblically? No, because the next thing that he said he would do is declare that it's okay. This was a pastor. Uh, but what's happening is people are twisting scripture and, and using Greek terms to say, well, homosexuality doesn't really mean homosexuality. Sodomy doesn't mean sodomy. Uh, and there's a lot of that going on. This pastor is certainly involved in that. Don't become desensitized to your child's sin. And by the way, don't think that you can compartmentalize sin. You say, well, so what if he becomes angry? He's not going to engage in that sin. Forget it. You've opened the floodgates by becoming desensitized to your child's sin. He's going to think that every sin is okay. He's going to know what you think about anger. So if you don't address his anger biblically, He's going to think the same thing about any other sin. He's going to justify it somehow. Number 10, if you want to exasperate your children, pass them off to someone who thinks he's the ultimate child whisperer. Oh, he's so good with kids. You know, it's a rough go. Things are getting really difficult. Well, you know, that guy, he's really good with two-year-olds. He's really good with six-year-olds. You know, let him handle him for a while, see how it goes. Do that, and your child will become exasperated. What happens when that guy leaves? Or other people leave? What happens when it's only you and your husband, or you and your wife, or just you? You don't have that person. Is the scripture not enough? And by the way, teaching that child to believe that you have no authority in his life. Number 11, flood them with toys. Flood them with toys. 
Oh, and along with that, as they get older, expect them to be frugal, wise, and non-materialistic. Why do you love stuff so much? You say, well, it's their grandparents' fault. You're the parents. Father, you're the father. You've got to bear this responsibility. Number 12, refuse wise counsel. If you want to make it really bad, act like you receive wise counsel, but then refuse it. Believe others who have made mistakes can't help you. That would mean that no one could help you. Believe especially that older people can't help you. Well, it's been a long time since they were parents and, you know, things have changed. I had a guy tell me that right before I got married. Just so you know, when you start having kids, you know, don't, you know, don't go to my parents. Come to me. Because my parents, you know, they were, they were good parents way back. But, um, you know, that was a long time ago. Thirteen. Receive worldly counsel. It's the other side of the coin. Believe that the church is not enough. Believe that the church can't exhibit wisdom. Now, on this note, the church deserves this response because there's been such a lack of discernment cultivated in the church. But in a church where discernment is truly cultivated, you have enough help. You have enough hope. Receive worldly counsel. Take them to a professional rather than subjecting themselves to those who actually know Christ, actually know the word. You say, what about the professional who knows the word? Why would he need to have become a professional? What, what does he need more than God's word? Someone told me recently they were considering going to the master's college to get a degree in biblical counseling. That's a worthy pursuit because there will be a lot of time spent in understanding the sufficiency of God's word, not only for parenting, but helping others in their parenting. Why add Freud to that? By the way, wanted people to believe that God didn't exist. Rejected most of what he believed on his deathbed. 14, withhold discipline. Withhold discipline. Just don't do it. Or, do it some of the time and not consistently, not with faithful consistency. Well, we tried that at home. Well, we did that. 15, apply prolonged punishment. This will seriously exasperate your children. Continue punishing them for something that they did a week ago or three hours ago. Well, we're not letting them do this because why didn't you just take care of it right there and then Explain to them how discipline works. Show me a passage in Scripture that instructs parents to prolong punishment, to drag it out. In Paul's era, in Paul's day, when punishment was delivered, it was done publicly, it was done severely, and it was done. That's how it was handled. You say, what about certain circumstances where someone was in jail for a long time? That was to prevent them from continuing to commit crimes that were of such great severity that a severe public punishment wasn't good enough. It wasn't severe enough. It's not to say that some prolonged punishment in due time is absolutely wrong. But when that's your first response, okay, you're grounded, no chocolate for six weeks. 
Is that going to modify their behavior? Yes, certainly. Is it going to affect their hearts? Yes, certainly. It's going to exasperate them. Time out. Where'd that come from? Not the Bible. Put them in a corner, facing the corner. Start with 10 minutes. And exasperate your kids? Do that. Because they have no idea what's going on. They have no idea when you're going to let them get up. They don't know what 10 minutes is. Tell them what's going on. Communicate with them. Help them understand that discipline is intended to keep them out of hell. And make it mean something. Make the discipline mean something, but explain it. But to let them sit there and stew. You want your children to be exasperated. We're still on number 15. Apply prolonged punishment. Take them off the baseball team because of their conduct. And punish the whole team and the coach. Yeah, that's really helpful. But it changes my son's conduct when I do things like that. Right. And it also exasperates him. And it does absolutely nothing to cultivate grace or an understanding of the importance of biblical discipline. Number 16, medicate them. Medicate them. You want to exasperate your kids? Just lower his cerebral ability. Do everything you possibly can to change his ability to exhibit his sin rather than dealing with his sin biblically. Number 17, be a pragmatist. Be a pragmatist. Determine that what you think works is better than God's design. Well, spanking doesn't work with my child, but when I take away his toys, that really impacts him. You ever heard somebody say that? I've heard this a lot. Spanking didn't do it for my kids. Really? So God was wrong? But my kids are different. Really? God didn't know that your kids would be different and then provide other passages of Scripture that say, if the rod doesn't work, then try this. Oh, the arrogance. The unbelievable, immeasurable arrogance. And it's so easily stated as if it's okay. Number 18, Teach them to have good manners without a changed heart. Teach them to have good manners without a changed heart. And one day, they'll prove who they really are when they're outside the home. And you might not know about it for a long, long time. Number 19, treat their mother poorly, fathers. You want your kids to be exasperated, treat their mother poorly. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. See, men, the child who sees a man who nurtures his relationship with his wife that way, that he's using the, the word of God to water his wife, in essence, in such a way that she would be cleansed with the word, rather than beating her with it, that's the husband who has a non-exasperating impact on his child, but the man who simply treats his wife poorly, his children's mother poorly, is teaching them that that's okay. You say, what if I failed? I would say, so have I. And I would say, repent. Confess your sin. Embrace Proverbs 28, 13, that says that he who conceals his sin will not prosper 
but the one who confesses and forsakes his sin will find compassion. Tell your kids, guys, men, tell your kids, I treated your mom poorly, and it was shameful, and it was hell-worthy. And I don't want you to do that, and I want you to know that when I've done that, it's wrong. Tell them what they kind of know, but codify it for them. Polish it for them. Tell them what they need to hear from a biblical perspective. They know that you've mistreated their mom. But when you act like you didn't, they think that you think you've got them fooled. Know that you don't have your kids fooled. Know that they won't forget these things. Know that when you address it properly then they will at least understand that you know it's wrong. And as you show a pattern of spiritual growth and a willingness to reject such hard attitudes and conduct and ultimately treat your wife, their mother, as she should be treated according to Scripture, then they will have a pattern in their own hearts and minds for what it should actually look like. And they will trust you to exhibit that, to help them exhibit it as well. And number 20, Leave discipline to their mother. Well, she's with them all day. You know, she's better at that stuff. You know, she's more creative with that kind of thing. That's really 20A and 20B. Leave their mother out of the discipline process. Either way, you're setting your child up for exasperation. Well, who is in charge? When is it okay to do these things and not do these things? Set a pattern for your wife, for your kids, that they would see that what you do in the home is what you do for your wife's sake. You know, I've said to my boys many, many times, what'd your mother say? And they don't even answer anymore. They just do it. But can I tell you, if that pattern persists, I have failed. If I'm still having to ask when they're 8, 10, 12, what did your mother say? Somehow or another, there was a brokenness in the developmental teaching along the way. I shouldn't have to say that at some point. They should know there are consequences coming for mistreating their mother. There are consequences coming for disobeying their mother or their father. And I think this is one of the biggest mistakes we can make, and I've certainly made it, is when you see this aberrant conduct, this foolish and sinful conduct, and then you give a correction, a verbal correction, but you don't apply discipline for the wicked, evil conduct, for the sinful conduct. You've just trained that child to believe that at least one expression of sin is okay, so long as I respond rightly to the verbal correction. See that? You're training the child to think that it's right and it's okay and I can do it. There's got to be some faithful consistency with these things. Well, next time, we'll deal with this command to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, you've given us so much in the scripture on this topic. I believe that in your sovereign care of our church, that you will provide innumerable opportunities in the future for those who now rest in our homes as small children, trusting in our provision trusting in our care for them, trusting in our ability to protect them. Opportunities for 
expressions of the gospel on a much grander scale than what we have today and what we might ever imagine. As we think about the call upon our lives to be engaged in sharing truth, teaching others to obey Jesus Christ in the uttermost part of the world, we thank you for the privilege to to have a Skype call with Sherry all the way in Tirana, Albania, and those that she's ministering to and with. But Lord, help us, help us to remember that the little ones in our homes are a much more fundamental ministry by which we are to engage in reaching those in the remotest part of the world. We have a very concentrated, a very serious, and a very short opportunity to avoid exasperating our children. Help us to be strong and humble, committed and loving, and willing to obey the Scripture, to trust you, and to know that if we raise our children in the things of the Lord, they will not depart from it. For a moment, Lord, I want to pray for those who have older children. I pray that you'd give them great comfort, hope, hope on top of hope. You'd provide strength and that all of that would be couched in humility. And that that would be nurtured in the church. That we as a local church would be sensitive and kind to those who have wayward children. That we'd be prayerful rather than gossiping. That we would take time to minister to those who are struggling in their parenting. That we would be humble ourselves. That Lord, you would produce in us through those whose little voices we hear just on the other side of that wall right now, that they would be nurtured to be godly, holy, non-angry, non-exasperated, disciplined, well-taught, God-fearing, gospel-saturated adults who are lovers of God and lovers of Jesus Christ. And we plead with you for your help directly from your word but also from each other as we look at your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.